I'm Alon Ben-Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and former State Department Middle East Analyst and Negotiator in Republican and Democratic Administrations. In this episode, we discuss Gulliver Troubles, the assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, U.S. involvement in Iraq and the broader Middle East, and the American role in Israeli-Palestinian peace. Well, thank you, Aaron, for taking the time. Well, Lauren, it's a uh, pleasure. So, thank you. So, let me just ask you to begin with the, uh, the killing, the assassination of um, General Soleimani. What's your take on that, and what are the implications from your perspective? Uh, I mean, there, there are political, moral, legal questions with respect to the killing and the motivation as to why. Um, on the moral issue, you know, I, I have no problem uh, with the fact that uh, Qasem Soleimani has played a destructive role. He's been responsible for the deaths of, by Pentagon estimates, well over 600 uh, Americans in by the use of EFPs and IEDs, uh, scores of thousands of Syrians, Iraqis, and to the extent the Revolutionary Guard, Al-Quds Force, played a role in repressing dissent within Iran, he bears that responsibility too. What troubles me is that, um, like many things in the Trump administration, it's a discrete act which appears untethered from any broader strategy or, or sense of purpose. And I think that's been made clear by the difficulties the administration has had explaining um, why Soleimani was killed on the front end. Mm -hmm. I mean, was he involved in a ticking bomb terror plot that was a day or two away? Was this based on intelligence that was really good and compelling? The administration has chosen not to make that case, and they've made several different kinds of cases. And on the back end, the question is, uh, what was it designed to achieve? Was it part of a strategy designed to deter Iranian bad behavior in the region, simply eliminate a very clever, skillful man from the battlefield? And what relationship does it have to the very real possibility that escalating tensions, particularly in a place like Iraq, could wind their way into a much broader confrontation with the United States. The other issue, of course, is, and I raise, it's not a rhetorical question, what is the Trump administration's approach to Iran? Is it to lay the basis for regime change by creating internal scent through maximum pressure on, on uh, economic issues and political isolation? Uh, is it to lure the Iranians back into a negotiation of real substance to negotiate a JCPOA plus or some set of different arrangements? I think that's very important because military force, whether it's killing, and we could talk about whether this was a political assassination or a targeted killing, um, military force, when deployed by the United States, has to be linked or tethered to sustainable and realistic political goals, and I don't know what those goals are. I, I think you're absolutely right. That is, 
there is, it seems to me, there is no American strategy at this point vis-a-vis -vis Iran. And the question is whether killing him has advanced anything in terms of, you know, you're suggesting, you know, maximum pressure. But as a matter of fact, I see that, uh, in fact, where the Iranian people were demonstrating out, you know, because of economic hardship. Whether now, after the killing of Soleimani, they rally around the government. So, so the immediate uh, objective was not achieved. You know, in fact, uniting the, the, the Iranian people, that was an immediate result. Now, that, of course, can change. But the killing itself, and I, I wrote a piece about, for me, from my perspective, killing leaders of other countries violates international, the whole order. That is, if countries begin to kill each other leadership, where do you go from there? Well, I mean, you know, in 1976, under the Ford administration, um, legislation was passed banning political assassination. Now, the uh, Trump administration has made the case that this was not an assassination. This is what they would call targeted killing. Uh, I think they believe they're covered under American domestic law, either as a consequence of Article II of the Constitution and the role of commander-in-chief, or they've even cited the AUMF in uh, 2002 uh, for Iraq. Um, you'd have to demonstrate, and Agnes Kalaman, the uh, Special Rapporteur for the UN, has been quite vocal on this. You'd have to demonstrate, in order to justify this, one, that the threat was imminent, and two, that it occurred in the context of a international armed conflict between the United States and Iran. We're not at war with Iran. And I was thinking the other day, when was the last time an American president ordered uh, the willful killing uh, of a prominent personality in a, in a, in a sovereign state? Um, and, I, you know, I thought about bin Laden and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, but that, those were uh, jihadi ter terrorist movements. You'd have to go all the way back to, and this doesn't really fit, but all the way back to um, 1943 when the United States targeted the transport plane carrying um, Admiral Yamamoto mm -hmm. in the Solomon Islands. It was a planned operation. It was called Operation Vengeance to kill him in retaliation for his role in planning Pearl Harbor. But mm -hmm. that was in the context of a military conflict. Mm -hmm. So, no, I, again, and I think the real issue here, like many things with respect to the Trump administration, is um, what is the overall approach? Means have to be somehow coordinated with ends. And here's where I think the Trump administration is not alone. And we, we are stuck, in my judgment. And I felt this way ever since leaving the Department of State in, in uh, 2003, we're stuck in a broken, angry, dysfunctional Middle East uh, with highly imperfect partners, um, worse adversaries, and we're caught in a bind. On one hand, we can't transform the region. Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria have shown that. On the other hand, we can't leave the region because we have allies, adversaries, and interests there. So if you can't transform and you can't extricate, what do you do? My solution is to pursue what I call smart transaction. And smart transaction is based on a couple principles. Number one, 
the, you know, the strategic imperative, you know, what in, a, in, a, in what Star Trek would call the prime directive is to define what core American interests are in this region, vital interests. And when I use the word vital, I mean interests for uh, interests uh, that a president would further by being willing, A, to put Americans in harm's way, B, to expend whatever financial resources are required, and C, to risk American credibility. And I would argue to you alone that there are only three, but we only have three vital interests in this region. Number one, pre preventing to the degree that we can another galactic terror attack against the homeland mm -hmm. or, or our embassies and military installations in the region. I'd add our allies there, but I'm speaking here primarily as an American. Second, even though we're freeing ourselves from Arab hydrocarbons and will continue to do so, we need to ensure that uh, the oil that flows through that region and all of the petroleum byproducts continue to flow because oil trades in a single market. You disrupt supply in X, it's going to have an impact in Y. And then finally, we do have a stake in preventing the emergence of, and I use the word carefully here because I don't think there are any, a regional hegemon with a nuclear weapon. All right. Everything else in this region, everything from pursuing Arab-Israeli peace to trying to determine the role we can play in helping the Arab world become a place where there is more gender equality, transparency, accountability, human respect for human rights, that's all, in my judgment, in the discretionary category. Mm -hmm. All right? And it seems to me that we are still struggling with trying to define those interests. Even this administration, which claims it wants to have a more realistic, risk-averse view, you, you, you see what it's gotten itself into. Since May, we've deployed an additional 15,000 forces. So I, I think defining those core interests uh, and then making sure that we don't get distracted and diverted into... Uh, uh, you know, I'll use the term trillion dollar social science experiments in which we believe wrongly that we can somehow transform places like Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria into functioning polities. I don't think we understand the degree to which the Arab world, the dysfunction that exists there. And, you know, I, I, to me, it's quite clear that the three most functional powers in this region today are the three non-Arabs, Israel, Iran, yeah, and Turkey. Sorry. They all have problems, mm -hmm. um, but they don't nearly have the challenges that confront Libya, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I, frankly, you know, have no solution to these problems, and I do not ascribe, I remember during the second briefing when we briefed Bill Clinton before he we went to the Camp David Summit, he said, and he inspired us all, he said, and he still uses this expression, so does Hillary, trying and failing is better than not trying at all, all right? That's quintessentially American, but what people don't get is that every time you fail, 
it costs. And this is compounded. It has a compounding effect as well. So we're stuck. Yeah. And I, I, I have come to the conclusion now that um, no power in this region or external to this region has the capacity to digest it and to dominate it. And that's something we need to wise up to very quickly. The, the, the region is too complicated. It's too broken. It's too dysfunctional. It's too uncooperative. So we're going to continue to struggle. I use the image of a modern-day Gulliver wandering around in a region we don't understand, tied up by tiny powers and bigger ones who don't share our interests and driven by our own illusions. And as a consequence, I'm not entirely sure we're even learning anything. No, I agree with you, but I think I take this back even into the early 2000s, you know, with the Iraq invasion, with the Iraq war. That is, when I look at this whole period, 17 or 18 years, I really cannot discern, and I agree with you, we can define our interest in the Middle East, but we do not have the strategy, and that goes back decades, more than two, almost two decades now, even more than that. We don't have a clear view what it is that we want to achieve, what is the strategy that we should adopt in order to achieve that, this objective. And of course, during the last three years, I mean, I don't see any strategy whatsoever. Well, At least Obama has had some views, and yes. we don't agree with his foreign but, policy. But I did not agree. But let me ask you a question. Up until, and again, I've, I was critical of many aspects of the Obama administration's policies, but let me ask you, up until 2016, the three core interests that I identified, we were largely succeeding in protecting. Since 9-11, there has not been a single successful terror attack organized by a foreign terrorist organization against the continental United States. All of the people killed in jihadi-related attacks were killed by permanent legal residents or U.S. citizens. So, and now you have a new phenomenon. You've got the emergence of right-wing white nationalism. So check that box. And through three years of the Trump administration, there still has not been a successful attack organized by a foreign terrorist organization. Check that box. Number two, maintaining access and keeping the oil flowing. We've succeeded in doing that, and uh, in part because of fracking and shale oil production, you know, we're now the dominant exporter of oil in the world. And three, we had something called the JCPOA, flawed though it was, that uh, at least restrained and constrained Iran's capacity to produce enough fissile material to make one nuclear weapon. Now, it didn't stop Iran's regional role, didn't break down the, or didn't improve the dysfunction in the Arab world, but we were doing okay. But they, what, and then, and, and I think, given, if you buy my notion that okay is about the best you're going to be able to do, in this broken, angry, dysfunctional region, I don't understand what all the shouting is about. I mean, we are actually, we actually, Trump has proven dysfunctional in so many regards, but if you freeze, freeze-framed 
the U.S. interests, in vital interests in the Middle East in the year 2015, with all the imperfections and all the flaws, you'd have to say the region's a mess, but, a, but we're not doing badly. Yes, but this, this is, uh, you know, I agree with you, we, have, we are not doing badly, but look, however, the repercussions of the American so-called foreign policy regarding the Middle East. So when you look at the region now, state, country by country, Israeli-Palestinian Israeli conflict is more intractable today than ever before. Not our fault. Nevertheless, I'm saying... And when I say well, our, I just don't mean the Trump administration. The, I think they've made it worse. Uh, they made it worse. They've made it worse, but they're not the reason we don't have an Israeli-Palestinian No, I, I agree with you, but they made it worse. I mean, you know, what Trump has done, or the various steps that he took, basically made the prospect of a two-state solution far more remote than ever before. Yeah, trust me, they were incredibly broken when he inherited this. I, I agree. I, I'm I just told saying, you what I said to Mr. Uh, Kushner the first time I met him, that I wish my father-in-law had as much confidence in me as his father-in-law had in him because he's given him Mission Impossible. I told him flat out, you will not solve this. You can make it worse. No. And they made it. All right, so yeah, and they made it. that's fine. Now, Iran, our minute with Iran, subsequent to the Iran, the the withdrawal from the Iran deal now in a much worse shape. With That's the Iran. again a mistake made by the Trump by the Trump administration. I'm just saying, you know, Trump administration uh, Obama, of course, in that regard, he did an excellent uh, job in uh, getting that Iran deal. Look at Yemen, what's happening today in Yemen. Look at what is going on in Iraq. Yes, whereas we, as American, yes, achieves the objective, and you articulated rather very well. The repercussion, we now have a greater mess in the Middle East than probably since the Clinton administration. Yeah, and I think that was a unique period in which... So, well, so it, to, it, to what you attribute, that's solely to the countries involved? I mean, we have... Well, you, have a, to apportion, a you have to apportion the responsibilities, okay. okay? So, and I've never, since leaving the State Department in 03, I've never been shy about accepting blame and responsibility for the peace that I had a role in, which is the whole notion of can there be an Arab-Israeli-Israeli-Palestinian peace? I mean, I spent half my adult life over the last 17 years either apologizing or trying to look honestly at the mistakes we made. But when you come down to it in the end, when you strip it all away, as, as much as we have contributed to a non-solution, at the end of the day, you need three things for, to solve this, and only two of them are our responsibility. You need leaders who are masters of their political houses, not prisoners of their constituencies, and you do not have them, and you have not had them, That's right. with rare exception. You need ownership. The Arabs and the Israelis have to care more about this than we do. It is no coincidence that every breakthrough Every single one, without exception, in the Arab-Israeli conflict, and there have only been three, occurred without the, without the foreknowledge of the United States. When Dayan showed up in October 77 in this town at the State Department and briefed my predecessors that he was meeting with, with um, Sadat's Vice President Tahami, they were stunned. And within a month... Sadat was in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. I was on vacation in August of 93 
when the State Department Operations Center called and said, you better come back to Washington. The Secretary of State's headed out to California to meet with Holst in Paris. We knew there was an Oslo channel, but we had no idea that it was a decision channel. And the Israelis and the Jordanians have been negotiating with one another secretly for decades. Yes, yeah. All right, so you can, you can say that we are the problem, but I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's not an accurate con. Yes, we are a large part of the problem, but we don't have Israeli-Palestinian peace because we're the problem. No, no, and I'm not suggesting we don't that. We don't have it because the Israelis and Palestinians are not ready to make the decisions that only they can make. This is true, but I think also, in my mind, the United States has at least partly, partly to blame a little bit. You look at the relationship with Israel, U.S. bilateral relation with the state of Israel. United States consistently, almost regardless of what administration, go back to 1948, have been supportive of Israel almost without a little pressure during the first Bush administration uh, when Shamir was in power. Then. But, the, but the United States enabled just about every Israeli leader. I, I, I'm telling you alone, I don't, I don't but, accept it. But that's I contributed. I don't accept it, don't accept well, it because you, you know, we can go, we can start with Eisenhower in 56, who literally threatened the Israelis, threatened them and the Brits with an oil embargo if the Israelis didn't withdraw from Sinai. You can go to the, yeah, but that go was, to the Carter, you can go to the Carter administration. You could go to, and, and Kissinger, even Kissinger and Nixon. When we look at our relationship with Israel, only we've only done it three times, Kissinger, Carter, and Baker. Only three times we've done it. When we look at that relationship as a special relationship, but not an exclusive relationship, and we're willing to use honey and vinegar to pressure the Israelis, we can actually actually make progress. And it's no coincidence that Kissinger, Carter, and Baker are the only three individuals representing administrations that made any progress. Yeah, but then again, you know, how much vinegar, so to speak, they have used. That is, there were threats, there were intimidation sometimes. But the truth of the matter is, uh, the United States never took concrete step right. against and any Israeli leader and say, you've got to do A, B, C, right. or D, or else. And, and there's a reason for that. Because the history of negotiations, particularly on problems that are as complex and as intractable, dealing with matters of existential reality, religion, and domestic politics, if you look at the history of American diplomacy toward any region of the world, you will not find an articulation of what you just said anywhere which is, you've got to do this or else. And that's in large part because the Middle East is littered with the remains of great powers who believe wrongly that they could impose their will on small tribes. I don't buy it. I also don't buy the notion, as imperfect as Israel is as an ally, it is the only state in the entire region in which there is any coincidence and confluence of interests and values. 
And you, you want to know what an ally is? And we have no perfect allies. An ally is a country in which there's a high degree of coincidence of our values and interests. It's a country whose relationship has endured over time and has proven effective. And it is anchored in domestic political support. France is an ally. Britain is an ally. Canada is an ally. Australia is an ally. New Zealand is an ally. Germany is an ally of recent, of in the last 70 years. And so is Japan. The Israelis, there is no other state in the Middle East in which there's any coincidence of the three factors that I just identified. So you don't say to an ally, you do this or else. But that's it's completely that's... untethered from American politics. It's untethered from reality. And it's untethered from the way negotiations yeah, it, really it is, work. It's not exactly threatening and what I'm really saying. You know, you and Israel have been depending on, depending on the United States from day one in so many politically, financially, and otherwise. So we had levers to use. Well, we have not really used them. Right, but I, I would argue we can take uh, yeah. them one by one. We can go through the, if you're talking about the Arab-Israeli conflict, we can go one by one. And I would argue to you that we got, in the three cases I identified, which are the only three breakthroughs, three disengagement agreements within 18 months by Henry Kissinger, an Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty, and something akin to a framework at Madrid. Oslo was not our process. Mm -hmm. They didn't want us involved. I'll tell you, I mean, I got stories on this. Dan Kurtzer and I drafted a document even before Oslo. Rabin described it as the worst, the worst American paper since Camp David. <laughs> All right? Palestinians didn't want us involved, and either did the Israelis. This was not our show. And frankly, it showed because there was no effort on the part of the United States, in large part because it concerned matters that I think we were not well suited to take on. All I'm suggesting is that the notion that if, if, dot, 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 the United States had pursued diplomacy that was tougher, more sustained, and more tethered to some strategic goal that somehow we could have fixed the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which I might add, of the four borders, is the hardest and the one that, in my judgment, requires the most buy-in from the locals. Yes, look, uh, I think I think also have to look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from here, domestic perspective. I think in this in this regard, Israel occupies a unique position, unlike any of the major allies that you just mentioned, and that is the, the support that, is, that Israel has here in the United States. And I'm not talking about Jewish support; I'm talking about the evangelical. Right, but there's support. a reason for that. Yeah. Okay. What well, I'm saying is, but that has had and continued to have significant impact on American policy but, toward Israel. Right. It does. But we have a political system and a constitution which essentially allows a degree of persuasion and lobbying that makes this possible. I mean, there's a reason the Saudis, the Jordanians, the Palestinians, the Egyptians have never had the influence in this political system that the Israelis have had. 
Well, because they don't enjoy the same constituency they, that Israel they has. They don't, but the it's United also, States, but which they is very also, significant. You know, since 1945, you could count on, well, Freedom House would argue to you that there are 20 countries since 1950 that have maintained their democratic character continuously. Only 20. And the reality is, however imperfect Israel's democracy, and it is very imperfect, some would argue it's a preferential democracy. Some would argue it's not a democracy for all its citizens. Nonetheless, in terms of translating that, the character, the value affinity of that country in terms of American domestic politics, it's an easy sell. You just had, you just had the UN is now reporting that the Saudis hacked into Jeb, Jeff Bezos's phone. I mean, <laughs> all I'm saying, all I'm saying is it's it's a complicated story. I know the other narrative is had we squeezed the Israelis harder because of the dependency argument, poof, we could have had an Israeli-Palestinian peace. Having tried to do this for 25 years, I'm telling you, I don't buy it. Well, I mean, you know, we we're going to have to disagree on this issue in particular. I mean, in enabling the Israelis all these years from the settlements to the way they treated the Palestinians, I think I think something had to be said. That is, the United States, I think, fell short, to say the least. But I want to get your views on some other point, which is uh, the implication of what happened recently because of the assassination on, on Iraq, of Soleimani on Iraq. Where do you see that's coming? Now, Iran seems like it is able to to exert even more influence in Iraq than, than before the assassination. Do you, yeah, I think that's right. It's a long game, I think, and we haven't seen the repercussions from um, the assassination um, of the head of the popular mobilization forces. And, you know, the reality is the Iranians have a distinct advantage in terms of geography, demography, their historic associations with various Iraqi groups. I noticed the other day that the administration made a unilateral announcement that its cooperation with the Iraqi security forces against ISIS has resumed. Now, whether the temp tempo of the operations was as intense as before, I doubt it. Um, the Iranians are playing the long game. Uh, they've managed to shift, change the channel in Iraq from demonstrations against them and their extractive, high-handed role to making the U.S. the focus. I think we have a genuine security problem now. I hope we don't have blue-on-green violence like we had in Afghanistan when an Iraqi member of the security forces decides to shoot their trainers, which happens in Afghanistan, could easily happen here because the mm -hmm. debt has not been paid for the killing of uh, Abu uh, Ali Abu Mohandas. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, some people argue that we've reached the pinnacle of our relationship with Iraq, that the trust has been irrevocably broken, I and that so. we probably will not be able to sustain our role. But I would I would suggest to you, and, and I know compelling arguments can be made on each side. There's a real question in my mind: What are we doing? in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Why are we there? Right. ISIS has been shattered in terms of the caliphate. We're going to have to deal with, with uh, ISIS as a transnational terror organization, but the reality is it will thrive 
in large part because of the broken nature of the Iraqi polity. You know, Shia domination and discrimination against Kurds and Sunnis are going to create a fertile environment for the Islamic State to continue to prosper. And we can't fix that problem. So I'm not sure. Um, I think an argument could be made that uh, a withdrawal of American combat forces or as trainers should be undertaken. I don't think it will, but uh, I think there's still a lot of sensitivity uh, with respect to uh, Obama's, what is regarded as Obama's premature withdrawal and the rise of ISIS and American credibility and all the rest. Do you have a few more minutes? Sure. To stop? Sure. Yeah. I just want to ask you one more question about Syria. And, and um, obviously, we have lost much of our credibility in Syria. Let's um, go, go, go back all the way to the Obama administration. What way do you see this is going in terms of, do we have anything left? I mean, we're basically abandoned Syria to the whims of Russia well, and Iran, I, for that matter. Right. I've been arguing, and I've taken a lot of grief for this, um, that Syria was never ours to lose. It's a notion that makes no sense to me. When the Arab Spring visited Syria, against all odds and probabilities, unlike Ben Ali, uh, Abdullah Saleh, Yemen, Mubarak, and Egypt, the Assad regime survived for many reasons. Iranian support, the nature of it was a family mafia enterprise. It had much more cohesion than any other regimes. The military and security services, unlike in Tunisia and Egypt, were willing to do anything to support the regime and their own perks. Um, Iranian and Russian support helped. I argued from the beginning that uh, even though Syria was a humanitarian disaster, it, it leaked terrorists and refugees, which had a terrible impact on European politics. Some mm -hmm. of the problems we're dealing with today, Brexit and the rise of popular nationalists in Europe, are related to the immigration problem. But the real question is, looking at Iraq and Afghanistan, could you find the balance between being what I call all in, mm -hmm. which would have been Iraq and Afghanistan, and not in? And the Obama administration, and it will become clear, spent an unbelievable amount of money on a flawed, structurally deficient, effort to arm the Syrian opposition. That was the middle ground. And it was, in my judgment, it was doomed to succeed. Just one additional point, and I, I, I make this, I sat on the Holocaust Memorial Council for two years. We, never again, which is a powerfully evocative slogan, I understand it completely, has been exposed, in my judgment, over the last century by an unwillingness on the part of the United States or any other actor in the international community to intercede or preempt or stop mass killing and genocide. From the Nazi Holocaust <laughs> to Rwanda, <laughs> to Darfur, to Congo, to the Rohingya, to Syria. That's right. With the exception of Bosnia and Kosovo, we have done nothing 
in the face of mass killing and genocide. And I, I would suggest to you, if the critics of Obama's policy on Syria are honest with themselves, they would say that what Obama did, half measures, half-hearted measures, was the rule, not the exception in U.S. foreign policy. That question deserves, I'm not a knowledgeable on this subject, but that question deserves another podcast. Why hasn't the United States interceded to stop mass killing and genocide? And, ever, and, ever. And this, uh, you're absolutely right. Let, just to, to, to finish this uh, discussion in, uh, in Yemen, what we're doing today, nowadays, is precisely the opposite. That is, we are now supporting, selling weapons to the Saudis to continue this horrifying slaughter that's taking place in Yemen. How do you... How yeah, do you it's been a disaster, and, yeah. and Congress, uh, uh, they could not override the president's veto on continuing to support Saudi military efforts there. It's been a disaster. Uh, it started in the Obama administration. Um... Yemen is another one of these problems, which is, I'd say it was a frozen conflict, but it's not. It's very much hot and, and it's a humanitarian disaster. I see no, no solution to that problem anytime soon. I see no solution to Libya. I see no solution to Syria, other than what, what is happening on the ground, which is the interaction between external and internal powers causing more dysfunction. The Assad regime, uh, the Houthis will remain a vibrant force. The Assad regime will incrementally consolidate their control. They'll have to respect certain red lines with respect to Turkey on one mm -hmm. hand and the Israelis on the other. The Russians will probably want to make sure that remains in balance because they don't want their Assad enterprise to fail. Mm-hmm. But this is, but see, this is, this comes, this is the, the essence of your question is the essence of this discussion. What does the United States do in a region of dysfunctional, broken regimes in which it has unreliable allies and very crafty adversaries? I think you're right. This should be our next podcast. <laughs> try to get Samantha Power and somebody else to interview. No, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, this the um, United States um, are to rethink the strategy in the Middle East and what policies. And then I think I would love to discuss that with you in terms of are there any solution and what kind of solution. Well, I can't thank you enough. Aaron. No, no, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.